But is it true you don't even vote? Yeah, no, I don't vote. Well, how do you have any authorities to talk about politics then? Well, I don't uh, get my authority from this pre-existing paradigm, which is quite narrow and only serves a few people. I look elsewhere for alternatives that might be of service to humanity. Alternate means, alternate political systems. Uh, they being? Well, I've not invented it yet, Jeremy. I had to do a magazine last week. I've had a lot on my plate. But I say, but here's the thing that it shouldn't do. Shouldn't destroy the planet. Shouldn't create massive economic disparity. Shouldn't ignore the needs of the people. Hi, I'm Dr. Devin Sanchez-Curry, and you're listening to Dialogues, Meditations, and Analyses, a companion podcast for the Problems of Philosophy course I teach at West Virginia University. You just heard the comedian Russell Brand propose the invention of an alternate political system. A system which does more than modern representative democracies to serve the needs of the people. On today's episode, we'll discuss the philosopher Alex Guerrero's idea for just such an alternative political system, which he calls the litocracy. But before doing that, I'd like to take a step back and reflect on what exactly you're supposed to be learning in this course. The Wikipedia game we played during our first class session tells us something about the distinctive subject matter of philosophy. Or perhaps I should say, distinctive subject matters of philosophy. Why, when clicking Wikipedia links, do you almost always end up reading the article on philosophy, no matter which article you start out with? Well, because philosophy is all about studying the really fundamental questions. And it doesn't discriminate. There are fundamental questions to be asked about literally anything you care to think about. Odds are, there's some philosopher out there who's put a lot of thought into how to answer them. This course is titled Problems of Philosophy. This is a good name. Our focus will indeed be on some of the fundamental problems that have confounded human beings for thousands of years. But it's also a misleading name in a couple of respects. First, calling an introductory course Problems of Philosophy may give the impression that philosophy is clearly defined by a few problems. In fact, Since there are fundamental questions to be asked of every subject matter, there are countless problems that I could have chosen to address in this course. I picked the problems that are actually represented on the syllabus, problems about inquiry, ethics, science, religion, social categorization, and the meaning of life, not because they're any more philosophical than any other fundamental problems, but because they're fascinating problems that are likely to be of interest to anybody, no matter your background or passions. The second reason the title Problems of Philosophy is misleading is that we'll be studying philosophical methods as well as philosophical problems. Just as it has many subject matters, philosophy has many methodologies, many ways of investigating fundamental questions about the world. But perhaps the most important subset of these methodologies consists in various techniques for constructing and logically analyzing arguments. Logical analysis is by no means unique to philosophy. It's an important tool across the humanities and sciences, not to mention just for good thinking that anybody does in ordinary life. But only mathematicians and lawyers rival philosophers in the degree to which they nitpick the logic of arguments. One of the main goals of this course is to show you how, when put to good use in the context of philosophical writing and philosophical conversation, logical nitpicking can be hugely useful 
for coming to understand fundamental subject matters that everybody cares about. I can't show you that just by telling you it's true. Instead, by way of assignments and class discussions, I'm going to have you do the logical nitpicking yourself. I'm also going to use this podcast to model this philosophical methodology for you over and over again, so that you know where to begin. To that end, I have a guest joining us for today's episode. Dr. Justin Bernstein is a philosophy professor at Florida Atlantic University, with research specialties in political philosophy and biomedical ethics. I've asked Justin to introduce this week's required reading, Alex Guerrero's article on the litocracy, which offers a solution to the fundamental philosophical problem of how governments ought to be organized. Justin and I will then discuss Guerrero's ideas. We won't exhaustively probe every philosophical sub-problem that Guerrero raises. Instead, we'll give a broad overview of the terrain and raise a few questions in order to set you, the listeners, up to continue the discussion. In so doing, we'll also provide a model of a conversation that would earn an A, an A-plus even, if it were turned in for the philosophical conversation assignment that you'll be required to complete this semester. I'll tell you more about that next week. In the meantime, here's Dr. Justin Bernstein laying out the flaws in modern democracies that have led Guerrero to propose what he calls a quote-unquote lotocratic alternative. We live in a democracy. Democracy is important because it allows each person to have a say in what happens. We think that's really valuable morally. It's a way of ensuring that each person gets treated as an equal. But he points to some problems with that system. So first, imagine we lived in a democracy where instead of voting for political representatives, we just voted directly on issues. So we voted on spending bills for various sorts of things. We voted about whether to go to war, what the tax rate should be. Those are all really complicated sorts of questions. And we all have lives that are independent of figuring out what the you know income tax should be. We all have lives independent of figuring out how much lead should be allowed to be in the water. So, and we also don't have you know, a lot of times we don't have the knowledge about what the answers to those questions should be. So one solution to this problem, that we lack the time and uh, knowledge to really vote in an informed way, is to have each person vote for a political representative, somebody who can have a full-time job of figuring out, like, what we should do and then being held accountable by citizens so the thought is, if citizens vote for representatives who then go on to make decisions about a host of issues, the representatives can become informed and they can make good choices. And if they do a bad job of that, then citizens can hold them accountable through free and fair elections. So that's, you know, this should be pretty familiar. This is the sort of political system that's very popular the world over. When people talk about democracy, they typically have in mind something like this representative democracy, where you vote for representatives who then vote on issues. And so Guerrero points to some problems with this model. He's motivated by what he sees as the shortcomings of representative democracy. So remember that um, the thought is representative democracy works uh, because each citizen has the chance to hold them accountable. So informed citizens participate in free and fair elections. If somebody does a bad job, they vote them out. And if somebody does a good job, they keep them in. Well, the first problem is that elections often aren't free and fair. 
So for one thing, if they're not especially fair in the sense that there are significant financial barriers for most people to run for election. Whether you're going to be able to become an elected official at the national level is pretty much going to be determined by the time you're born as in terms of like how much money you come from. So I mean, obviously being born into a wealthy family isn't sufficient to be a political representative, but basically the thought is if you're not born into really fortunate circumstances, there's almost no chance whatsoever that you'll get to be a political representative. Sometimes it seems like it must be sufficient. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it probably is sufficient. You're right. If you have enough money, then it's sufficient. Um, the second sort of problem is that uh, corporate or a second problem is that elections aren't really free and fair because there's just such an advantage to the incumbent. We're really reluctant to vote people out. A third problem is that corporate money, so this is specific especially to the United States, uh, but that corporate money and television advertising have a really outsized influence on who uh, runs for office and then who gets elected. Um, and then finally, uh, marginalized members of our society face significant obstacles when it comes to voting. So think about attempts to disenfranchise people who are from uh, lower income backgrounds, people who have been convicted of felonies, or people who are non-white. All those individuals, I mean, there are ways in which uh, political officials make it much harder for those individuals to vote. So there's these problems with elections themselves. They're not really as free and fair as proponents of representative democracy often claim. There's also a problem with the idea that citizens are informed when they participate in free and fair elections. So again, you know, there's this problem with representative. The problem that motivates representative democracy is that we're not informed enough to vote directly on the issues. Well, that problem just sort of carries over to representative democracy. We're not really informed enough to know whether, uh, you know, which policies are good. And so we don't know which representatives we should really vote for to support those sorts of policies, right? So if you don't know whether, you know, allowing X amount of lead in the water is a good thing or a bad thing, a politician who says, I'm going to allow X amount of in the water doesn't really solve the problem of you not really knowing the answer because you don't know whether you should support that politician. You don't know whether they're making good policies. The other problem is that once representatives are in office, citizens are ignorant about what representatives are doing. Um, there's a lot of work by political scientists on this. We don't really, most of us don't know who uh, are the names of our senators or uh, local representatives. We don't really know what they're doing. And so what do we do instead? Well, citizens tend to defer to their party. So if you, you know, a lot of people, they go to the uh, polls and they just look and they see, okay, am I going to vote for the D's or am I going to vote for the R's? And then they just push the button for each person. But, you know, oftentimes, Guerrero uh, claims issues aren't going to be solved very well if we just vote for one party. There's often solutions in between these two parties. Um, and so, you know, just using our party as a sort of like stand-in for our own judgment isn't a very reliable way to get good results or to overcome this problem of ignorance, problem that we lack informed citizens. So what's the upshot of these, the, the problems with the elections not being free and fair and the problems with citizens being uninformed? Well, Guerrero really has sort of two kind of points about what the, what the upshot is. The first is that because of the financial barriers in part to getting elected, 
powerful, wealthy corporate interests determine which representatives get elected and stay in power and what policy decisions they make. This is what Guerrero refers to as capture. So powerful private companies um, capture political representatives. And, you know, we hear people talk this way. You think of the phrase like she's in the pocket of big oil or something like that. That's a case where you're saying that representative is captured. They're trying to promote the interests of a powerful private interest rather than, say, trying to promote, to, to promote the interests of citizens or their constituents. The second problem, that leads directly to the second problem, captured political representatives are not responsive to the interests of citizens. They might happen to make decisions that benefit citizens, but this isn't because political representatives are being held accountable by their constituents. Basically, the, you know, the idea that we're voting in the good and voting out the bad is just kind of a fantasy um, on Guerrero's sort of take, given that we're not informed and given that elections aren't free and fair. And so that leads him to imagine this alternative possibility that avoids the problems with representative democracy, but is still appealing for the same, for some of the same sorts of reasons. Very cool. So it seems like the big underlying problem here is just ignorance on the part of citizens, right? That was the original problem with direct democracy, and that's still a problem with representative democracy. The way that powerful interests are able to sway politicians is by relying on the fact that citizens don't know any better and don't know what's actually going on in D.C., so that leads me to wonder if the big problem is actually just how damn big modern nations are, right? So you live in Florida, I live in West Virginia, and whether, say, um, we should know a lot about policy for dealing with the aftermath of hurricanes matters a whole lot more to citizens who live in Boca Raton than citizens who live in Morgantown. And as a result, citizens of Florida are likely to know the facts and be able to hold their representatives more accountable than citizens in West Virginia when it comes to hurricane-related policy. So isn't a solution here just to go smaller, to give states and even local communities more political power and thereby make it such that citizens can actually make informed decisions and hold their representatives accountable? Right, good. So there's sort of three kinds of... um problems with that sort of view that Guerrero canvasses. The first is that even if we you know, just think about locally what should be done, there's still ignorance about what will be best. So you know, thinking about local, really local sorts of, uh, sorts of policy solutions in response to hurricanes, I mean, I don't really know very much about that, even though I live here and I have a big interest in, you know, policy being good in the face of hurricanes. To and be fair, you've lived there for like two that's, weeks. That's true. That's true. I, I <laughs> expect that I will know very little about it for the foreseeable future. For the As long as I live in this area, I will only know when something gets like looked, described as like really bad as a matter of policy. I'll probably be able to tell you what you shouldn't do in a few months uh, after we get hit with the hurricane and it's mishandled. But, um, I mean, and the reason why there's this ignorance is, and the reason why I won't know this, is that I, you know, I don't have the time, energy, and money to go out and figure out about all these sorts of local problems that are relevant. So, you know, I'm deciding to spend my time preparing a philosophy class rather than reading about the latest on what hurricane policy should be. Um, And finally, you know, even if a bunch of us try to solve problems more sort of locally uh, at a small scale, there's still these powerful corporate interests that are out there. It's not like 
if we start trying to get more engaged at the local level, um, that those powerful corporate interests that have already been created will just sort of disappear. Um, and so, you know, Guerrero describes this as going, and you describe this as going small. Well, why think that the small can overcome the big if there's still some big entities out there? Um, I would add that it's worth noting that, I mean, I've been talking as though we're talking about local politics. I mean, some of what Guerrero seems to have in mind here um, is like solving these sorts of problems without law. So using things like social norms um, and informal rules and an ordinary understanding about you know, what's going on in our society to solve right. problems that we all face. I mean, I think that that's, you know, that can, that does work really well in some contexts. And if people are interested in that, there's like work by uh, economists like Eleanor Ostrom who describe how various kinds of problems get solved really locally without law. But a lot of the problems we face aren't small like that, even if we focus on like the state level, like, you know, how to respond to a hurricane is pretty, it's a pretty big problem. And especially for, like, huge problems, like something like climate change, we're going to need, like, more than just local solutions and think that they might work out. That makes sense. So going small won't work. So what does Guerrero propose will work? So Guerrero, this is where the leptocracy comes in. It's an alternative to representative democracy. So there's sort of three main features of the leptocracy. First, rather than having, like, so currently in our representative democracy, we have congressional representatives who vote on every single issue, right? They vote about issues pertaining to spending on war. They vote on issues pertaining to, like, environmental regulations. There's a lot of different issues that they're navigating. So the first part of Guerrero's proposal is that rather than having, um, you know, just a single congressional body, we should break those issues into distinct little, what he calls single-issue legislatures. So, and he suggests here we might borrow from existing divisions in legislative committees and administrative agencies. So you'd have a single-issue legislature that focuses on agriculture, and you'd have a single-issue legislature that focuses on commerce, and you'd have maybe 20 to 25 of these single-issue legislatures. The second feature of autocracy, this is the uh, this is the big point, um, and this is what gets attention when you think about this idea, is that it, and it's the lottery part, latocracy lottery. You randomly select 300 people for each single-issue legislature, and each person serves a three-year term. So, like, rather than a political, you know, rather than a politician trying to get your vote, we just select people randomly in the same way that people get selected for jury duty, basically. So each, so, so you have these different single-issue legislatures, 300 people on each one, they're all selected randomly. From the entire U.S. population. From the entire U.S. population. And I think the thought is that the sample size is going to be big enough that it actually will be representative of the U.S. In a way that, remember, I mean, well, we'll get to this in a second, but remember one of the worries about representative democracies, it's just the wealthiest, you know, white men, basically, get to be in charge. The thought is randomly selecting will, one reason for thinking that's appealing is that it will be representative in the sense of like a census, you know, representative of our makeup. So my mom, who spent her career as a gym teacher, could be our next senator under this system. Uh, she would, yeah, she'd be on a single issue legislature. Yeah. Uh, in the same way that your mom could be selected for jury duty. That's absolutely right. Would it be like a physical education specific legislature? Nope. Randomly selected. No, no sort of trying to funnel people on the basis of their expertise. You're going to get people from all walks of life. Um, on a given 
single-issue legislature. So, yeah, physical education teacher from northern New York could be put on the legislature that has to do with hurricane policy. That's absolutely right. How is she going to know what to do? <laughs> well, um, let me just say one more thing, and then I'll, I'll directly return that question. The th sure. third part, well, this actually does sort of answer the question. The third part is that uh, the, these single-issue legislatures, the 300 people, they'll develop a legislative agenda each year. They'll, they'll put on a bunch of items that they're hoping to you know, figure out what they should do, and then they'll hear from experts and stakeholders um, before they vote. And they so the thought would be, your mom, you know, she serves on whatever single issue legislature is in charge of thinking about how we should respond to hurricanes. And she would hear from, uh, you know, weather experts, or she'd hear from people who are experts on disaster relief. Um, and then or, and she'd hear from people, stakeholders, people like me who are affected or hopefully not affected by hurricanes. And then after she and her other, the other members of the single issue legislature hear from these experts and ordinary people, these stakeholders, they would sort of have a discussion and try to figure things out. So here again, it's kind of like the jury system. So, you know, a jury hears testimony often from different experts, and then they go in a room and they sort of talk it out and they try to reason through what they think should be done. In that case, right. whether somebody should be found guilty or innocent, in this case, it would be what should the policy be in response to hurricanes. That's the system. So is it a good system? What do you think of it? So, I mean, I think there are things that are appealing about it. Here are the benefits that Guerrero claims that the system would seem to have. And some of them I'm more skeptical than others. One thought that's already come up is that by selecting people randomly, rather than requiring people to run for election, that ensures that a lot, a much broader segment of society gets selected to serve. Um, a second sort of benefit he claims is that it avoids capture in the way I talked about. So the thought is that if each person is serving a three-year term, it would just be not very feasible for like big oil to figure, to get somebody and say, okay, you're going to promote these sorts of policies in part because, you know, each person who's running for election, there aren't people who are running for election who need to raise money. So part of why politicians, you know, sort of allow themselves to be captured is that they need to raise the money to win an election. If you take the money out of politics, then the thought is you're not going to have capture by big, powerful private interests. The third sort of benefit, and this gets back to what you were sort of, I think, hinting at with the questions about your mom's a gym teacher, like, is she going to serve on this hurricane committee? The thought is that by having lots of different people from different walks of life, you actually end up arriving at really good decision-making. People are kind of, they manage to figure things out when everybody brings a sort of different perspective to the same issue. And here Guerrero uh, refers to some work by these political scientists, Hong and Page, and they claim to have shown that if you have a, a cognitively diverse group of people, a group of people who, you know, have a lot of different perspectives and things like that, and come and are from different, like, uh, say, gender backgrounds, racial backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, religious backgrounds, you have that diversity, they're actually better um, at decision-making than homogenous groups full of experts. So the thought is, you know, having people who are not experts is actually a feature rather than a bug of the view, which I think is, you know, that's interesting. 
Yeah, so that ties into the first point about fairness, which I get how a lotto would be fair. It would be fair in that you're just randomly selected, and so it doesn't privilege anybody over anybody else. But you might think fairness, taken a different way, points towards meritocracy rather than litocracy, right? Fairness says not that just, like, randomly, literally ever, anybody should get the job, but, like, the person who would do the job best, no matter what their background is, should get the job. Right. And the idea I take it behind a representative democracy is that we're voting for the person who we think will do the best job of being our representative. Uh, and litocracy just throws that out the window. And yeah, okay, maybe cognitive diversity has some merit to it. But doesn't also just being a good leader who's the best for the job have some merit to it? And aren't we aren't we losing the truly great leaders we sometimes have in government by by going in for the lotto? Yeah, so a few things to say there. One might be to push back on the idea that certain people like deserve that it's so using the language of fairness to think that like, well, this person, it's fair that this person should get to do this job because they're the most qualified. Not clear that we should think that when it comes to democratic governance, because remember the, you know, the, in, as opposed to like, you know, we're trying to hire somebody for a position, we should decide on the basis of who's, you know, most qualified, that seems the fair sort of decision. In the case of uh, governance, if we take seriously this idea that everybody has an equal say, then it becomes less obvious to me that it's like unfair that one person gets to be a representative rather than another because you know each person should have sort of an equal sort of say in the whole process. So it's not like one person's entitled to have more influence than another. What was your other point? Just that cognitive diversity may be a good, but doesn't that need to be balanced with a second good, which is just that like some people are cognitively better suited for thinking through complex issues having to do with hurricanes or welfare policy or whatever than others. And, and aren't those the ones we want to be putting in that position? Good. Okay. So a second sort of response that I would imagine, and I've heard uh, Professor Guerrero make um, in response to that objection is just that we're actually, you know, that might be right, but we're not good. Elections aren't a good way to figure out who those really good leaders are. And, you know, he would say, look at our, you know, Congress people right now. And, you know, some of them are good leaders, but a lot of them are awful. And some of the people who we think are good leaders are people who are actually making really bad decisions or are in the pocket of whatever industry that they're, they're captured. We're not really good at figuring out who the good leaders are as part of his point. So this is the information problem. So he would sort of push back on that. One interesting thing, this is a third thing. One interesting thing is, you know, he says that the single-issue legislatures aren't the only kind of government's institutions that he has in mind. So I think there would still be some sort of president or other sorts of – there would be other people who might still be elected. It's not clear how that would work. And so you might still get some of those benefits that you're talking about, Devin, at – some other sort of in other other branches of government. So you seem to think this is a pretty good idea. Uh, do you have worries about the system? Do you think we should be advocating for this? I mean, so I'll say one more thing that I like about it, and then I'll I'll start criticizing it. So one thing is that I think that I mean, and I think this is part of the motivation for the view, just anecdotally, is that people who need to win elections they have you know perverse incentives. So you know you have a real reason to look tough on crime. Um, when you're running for an election or you have a real reason to, you know, not increase the tax on carbon emissions so as to 
maybe take some steps towards reducing overall emissions and thereby combating climate change. Because people don't want their gasoline to be taxed more. People don't want their red meat to be taxed more. So, you know, I think that that's a nice feature of it too. Guerrero canvasses some worries for the view. So some of them we've already sort of hinted at. One is that just that people won't be very good at this. Um, I have some other sorts of worries that he doesn't talk about with as much. So one worry I have is he, you know, he says that by selecting people randomly, we'll avoid the financial barriers to running for election so that we'll get like people from all walks of life. But I mean, one of the problems he points to with representative democracy is that people are prevented from being able to vote when they're from, say, like lower income backgrounds or they're people of color or something like that. Well, if that's a problem for representative democracy, we can't just assume it away for the litocracy. So I think this kind of gets at a, a deeper sort of question about how we should be comparing political systems. If you say, look, here's this problem X, that we have bad people in power who are going to try to disenfranchise uh, voters. I mean, you can't just say, but those people won't try to make sure that only their friends or the wealthy and the powerful get selected for lotteries. So if we think that our current system is, you know, kind of, it's liable to being corrupted in this sort of way, then why shouldn't we think that the litocracy should be corrupted in that sort of way too? Right. It's easy to see how our current system is corrupted because it's actually happening right now. But you might think that the hypothetical system will be corrupted too. We just don't quite know how yet. Yeah. I mean, so one source of that corruption that occurs to me is that you might be giving even more power to lobbyists than they already have. It'll be a different sort of power because they won't have, you know, corrupt politicians on their side throughout that corrupt politician's whole career. Right. But it'll be a huge amount of influence on a bunch of people who have just been selected by lot and have no idea what they're doing. And so they're inclined to listen to the person who presents themselves as an expert, even if that person has, you know, uh, worries other than the good of the world in the face of climate change at heart. Yeah. So there's, yeah, there's kind of two ways you could see those sort of powerful interests getting a hold of these representatives. One is just, they, they claim to be the very experts that the representatives, the randomly selected representatives need to hear from. And so the representatives just kind of trust them because they're looking for guidance. The other is that, you know, well, the economics would still work out. It's still worth it for big oil to spend a lot of money trying to win over a couple of representatives who might take bribes or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Even if they have to do it with new people every three years or whatever. Right. So there's a big question about, I mean, it seems like he's assuming that the economics won't be as feasible for in the lotocracy as it is right now, maybe it won't be, but it, it doesn't follow from that, that it wouldn't be feasible to some large extent. So I guess I wonder how much better it would be at, at avoiding capture. I share your sort of question, your sort of worries about that. And one other thing that you brought up, the people are looking for guidance. I mean, I think that capture worry applies to the experts too. So whoever goes in and testifies to this panel of randomly selected people is going to have a lot of influence. Like, yeah. and we know this happens in like, our jury system, our, you know, jury trials. So people select experts who are like really charismatic, like lawyer attorneys know they're like, let's get that guy. He knows like how to really win over a jury with this sort of testimony. What they're responding to has nothing, has really nothing to do with the evidence that that expert's presenting. In the same way we could imagine like, you know, people sort of fighting over which experts get in and, and powerful corporate interests really kind of managing to get a say and pushing certain experts that 
are effective at advancing their viewpoint. Yeah, I mean, I think what what Guerrero's piece really highlights is that there are two huge sources of power in our legislature, both our actual representative democracy ones and an imagined litocracy one. There's the elected or selected by lot representatives, and then there are the quote-unquote expert uh, sort of sources of information behind the scenes that sway how those legislators make decisions, right? And we've talked about the legislators being selected by lot, but I wonder how are the experts selected, right? How do we know who to trust to basically tell my mom what to do when it comes to hurricane policy? Because she has no idea. Yeah, I mean, presumably you can't solve that problem by having another lottery, right? Because you want... You know, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't seem like that would go great. Yeah, you can't have lotteries all the way down. I mean, because, yeah, if you selected them randomly, then you really want experts. And, and so this is a point where, like, your earlier point, Devin, about, you know, don't we want the person who's really qualified and good as a leader... It seems like if we're not trying to do that at the level of the representatives, we should be trying to do that at the level of experts. And so if we can't come up with a way to select experts that's immune from interference by these powerful private interests, then it's kind of hard to see how we'll get much better results. Yeah, so to be fair, this seems like maybe an equal problem for litocracy and representative democracy. So it's not exactly an argument against litocracy if our current system is the only alternative. Right. But it does seem like a huge problem with how our society is set up that needs to be solved if either of these political systems is going to be successful. That's right. So maybe we're being a little bit too hard on the view because I've been saying, look, these problems that crop up for representative democracy seem to also crop up to some extent for the autocracy, but it still might be better. The problems might not be quite as bad, and it would be unreasonable to expect Guerrero's proposed system to like, solve all of the problems that, you know, that our current democracy faces. It's funny, Guerrero often quotes this like Winston Churchill quote, which is that democracy is the worst system of government except for all the others that have been tried. Right. And, you know, I think, you know, Guerrero's making a good case for the idea that, well, we haven't tried this one and it might be better. That, I mean, it certainly seems better than like a monarchy or oligarchy or something like that. So I think that that's appealing. So maybe, maybe there's some things that are worth highlighting that I think do run into sort of problems that the representative democracy doesn't run into as, as straightforwardly. So these are problems that are unique to the lotocracy. Yeah, one, one is like, how do we figure out the divisions of these single issue legislatures? And how do we figure out how to balance their competing recommendations that might sometimes be in tension? So, you know, Congress has these sorts of committees, these you know, oversight committees and special task forces and stuff like that. Uh, but they also have sort of a centralized decision-making body um, that oversees all of them. And it seems like Guerrero is getting rid of that. So you just have these different, like, little local sorts of congresses. Um, and I think there might be some real worries about turf wars, for instance. Like, okay, well, is this a matter of agriculture? Or is this a matter of commerce? Um, who's, you know, and, and how do we resolve disputes between these different sorts of bodies? I think that that would be really hard, and there might be advantages to having a single body that sort of decides right. on those sorts of issues. Yeah, I mean, we already see a lot of problems just having the sort of House of Representatives and Senate to explode legislative bodies in the way that Guerrero's system would require might just might just cause even more sort of red tape that keeps anything from getting done in D.C. Yeah, and you, and you can imagine the fights over, well, does that count? I mean, so we have gerrymandering of districts, right? Right now, you right. can imagine gerrymandering of single-issue 
legislatures. So you can imagine it's this one is about commerce and uh, agriculture that has to do with corn. Like you could imagine a single issue legislature that kind of gets gerrymandered in that sort of way because of powerful interests or whatever. Right. Is policy about how to regulate coal mining in West Virginia an issue for the commerce legislature? Is it an issue for the climate change legislature? Is it an issue for the natural resources legislature? Seems like it's an issue for all of them, but it's unclear how well they'll work together. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, I also think um, another thing that's nice about representative democracy is that you can, I mean, you can go and meet with your representative and your representative can like know people locally um, and selecting people randomly from all over. And it doesn't seem to allow for that kind of interface between representative and citizen. Now, I mean, maybe Guerrero would say there's not that much that's that beneficial uh, in those sort of interactions. And it's the, you know, the, uh, what is it? The squeakiest wheel gets the grease. The people who are loudest and most pushy and have the most power are the ones who really get FaceTime and stuff like that. But I mean, I think there are a lot of like local kinds of governance that happen with congressional representatives. That's valuable. That wouldn't happen here. Yeah. So these all seem like genuine worries about this system. I will say I do find really compelling Guerrero's argument that there's a real sense in which the litocracy is sort of more democratic than our current representative democracy. People ordinarily associate democracy really strongly with like the right to vote. And so that might seem like an odd thing to say in that you're getting rid of voting entirely with this system. But it seems like the heart of democracy is just each citizen getting a say in the process and each citizen being trusted to take a real part in the political process. And there's a real sense in which the litocracy would do that better than a representative democracy in that the litocracy would just pick any citizen with the deeply democratic assumption that any citizen is qualified to make decisions for the whole state. And so insofar as democracy is a deeply compelling way of organizing a state, I think there's something to be said for this lotocratic system as being the most deeply democratic system we've ever come up with. Um, and so maybe, uh, to go back to the Churchill quote, uh, we haven't actually tried democracy in its truest form yet. And so democracy is pretty bad, only the best of those we've tried, because we haven't tried it for real yet. Um, and maybe if we can work out these other worries about the system, uh, it would be a much better way to go. Yeah, I think, I think that's, a, that's a really good point. I mean, yeah, so to be clear, I think that this is a, a really, really cool idea. And it's provocative. I think its main value is what you just identified, Devin, is really pushing on what is it about democracy that we care about most. And, you know, voting doesn't seem to be at the heart of it in a lot of ways. And, yeah, it seems more democratic in some senses than anything we've ever seen. I will say that there is some historical precedent. So in like Athens, they had they selected people by lot to serve as senators. But the people they selected were it was very anti-democratic who they selected. They selected, you know, men who owned property. Right. You don't really get the cognitive diversity that uh, Guerrero is going for there. You restrict the lottery to the very people who we currently elect. If we restrict the lottery to them, then you forego the benefits. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's just like a way of speeding up the primary process. Exactly. I'd also say one, one last thing is that I think that this idea, even if we don't necessarily buy it at the level of single-issue legislatures, um, I think it has a lot of value in other kinds of contexts that might for political decision-making. So, for instance, I think some people have proposed using something like this for 
redrawing district lines. You try to select people at random so that it's sort of fair and representative and less subject to oversight or control. So you could imagine another use of that would be for coming up with like campaign finance law or something like that, where it's people who are from all walks of life and they just come to a decision together. Yeah, cool. So lotteries as a tool for democratizing some parts of the political process, even if you're not going to institute it as thoroughly as Guerrero is proposing. Exactly. Very cool. Well, thank you so much, Justin. Uh, I look forward to talking to you again soon. Likewise. Thanks, Devin. Thanks again to Dr. Justin Bernstein for joining me to talk about the litocracy. I'm glad to report that we'll be hearing from Justin again later in the semester. Before turning the discussion of what to do with our democracy over to you, the listeners, I just want to highlight one point that came up in conversation with Justin, and which is particularly salient given our purposes in this course. That's the point that in a democracy, whether representative or lotocratic, it's hugely important that there be an education system which equips each individual citizen with the ability to think through complex issues of huge importance, and then to arrive at sound decisions about what to do, or to urge representatives to do, about those issues. As I mentioned towards the start of this episode, that kind of careful and effective thinking lies at the very heart of philosophy. I'll let you in on a poorly kept secret. I don't really care whether you retain the facts about philosophers and philosophies that you'll learn this semester. Teaching you problems of philosophy and purported solutions to them is only a secondary aim of this course. The primary, admittedly immodest aim, the aim I do care a great deal about, is to help you become a more careful, critical thinker, and thereby to help you become the sort of citizen who could be counted on to serve on one of Guerrero's single-issue legislatures, no matter what policy area happened to fall within that legislature's ambit. So with that primary aim in mind, we'll spend next week discussing the basic tools of logical thinking. I'll talk to you then on Episode 3 of Dialogues, Meditations, and Analysis.